Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week in our 175th anniversary Open Future season, we're going back to our beginning. The Economist was founded to fight for free trade and open markets as the best way to happy, healthy and wealthy societies. One of the first great champions of this cause was the 18th century Scottish economist and philosopher Adam Smith. The author of The Wealth of Nations popularized ideas that are now part of everyday language, from the invisible hand of the market to vested interests and the division of labor. His face graces the back of the British 20-pound note. And a question for you while you listen. Which American TV villain kept a copy of The Wealth of Nations on their bookshelf? Well, we've set out to discover more about the man behind the free market nostrums and the way he shaped our understanding of how the world works. There's one thing that Smith does triumphantly right, and that is he puts markets at the center of political economy. And as worries that markets are failing too many people fuel a surge in populism in the West, what does an author who died in 1790 have to teach us in the 21st century? His view was that if there was too big a gap between the very richest and the very poorest that it would be difficult for a nation to progress. To understand the world that shaped him and his ideas, we travel to the windy crags and gothic spires of Edinburgh. In the 18th century, the Scottish capital became known as the Athens of the North, attracting the greatest minds in literature, philosophy and science. Smith's work drew him to the city throughout his life, and he eventually made his home here at Panmure House. If Adam Smith came back today, he would definitely recognize this house. The vast proportion of the house is as it was when he was here. It's a, a very traditional building. It's built in Edinburgh sandstone. All the stones in it are all different colors. They're dark brown and pink and pale blue some of them, and we're approaching the front door. I think the only difference is that the lamp above it in his day would have had gas. I don't think that's very safe, so we put electricity in ours. That's Heather McGregor, Dean of Edinburgh Business School. She's about to complete a 10-year project bringing Adam Smith's house back to life. And we're coming into the ground floor of Pamir House. It's all painted in block color. This might look like incredibly trendy, but this is how you painted a house in the 1700s. Harriet Watt University bought this house and have refurbished it so that it can become once again a place for economic debate and a place where people meet together to solve the big problems of the world just as they did back in the 1790s and that's what we hope for this house. 
Part of the difficulty of getting to grips with Smith is that besides Pan Muir, he left so little behind. He published only two books in his lifetime. Neil Kay is an economist at Harriet Watt University. Adam Smith was a perfectionist, which is why he left instructions to his executors after his death to destroy his unfinished works. Nowadays, people regard that as a tragedy, but as a reflection of the man, the perfectionist. He was a caricature of an absent-minded professor. He would walk from Pamu House up to Customs House, and people would see this strange person who, rather ungainly, would be talking in the air and gesticulating. So he was a strange and awkward person, but he loved the company of his friends. One of the things about Edinburgh in those days, at the time of the Scottish Enlightenment, was it was a rich broth, an amazing flowering of talent, literary talent, philosophical talent, scientific talent, all coming together around a very small geographically bounded city, Edinburgh. One of the strange things about it was when he died, he, his death wasn't particularly remarked upon, which was surprising. So in some senses, the first reaction was muted. But then his message to the world became clearer and much more influential later. And he's now recognised as basically the father of modern economics. That grand title has haunted Smith's memory. But how much truth is there to it? Jesse Norman is a Conservative Member of Parliament who writes about big figures in political thought. He's turned his hand to Adam Smith in a new biography. So how would he assess his significance? You know, some people say that Smith isn't particularly original and therefore he shouldn't be given that title. And it is true, as I've said, that many of his ideas can be found in other writers in different forms. But there's one thing that Smith does triumphantly right, and that is he puts markets at the centre of political economy. And I think that's an absolutely crucial move. And if we look at the reason why Smith is by far the most widely cited and influential economist now dwarfing Hayek, Keynes, Marx and the rest of them, is because of that foundational move. So if he puts the markets more more firmly at the heart of economics than other thinkers. Give me an example of that. Where would we notice it? We notice it in his own work, first of all, in the discussion of the division of labour and the idea of specialisation and all of the benefits you get from markets in allowing people to exchange and trade and develop economic value from that. And what he pushes us towards is a very much more nuanced idea of how we should think about market exchange in present-day markets, and you can see that when it's working well in things like so-called hamburgers and haircut markets, those are markets that are basically for consumer goods that get consumed and then thrown away, and also uh, you see them in asset markets which behave very differently, and the differences between them are something that we get out of Smith, and we often stop thinking about it when we're thinking about modern economics. But the division of labour, the idea, one of the many phrases that we sort of think of it's coming from nowhere, but is popularised really by Smith. I think you point out that's been happening since Adam delved and Eve span. Mm. Why was he groundbreaking in that sense? Or is he just noticing things? Is he just a better noticer than other economists? Well, he's a very good noticer and he's a very good uh, analyst of specific activity and he's a very good data gatherer. So what you get is a compendium in the Wealth of Nations of an awful lot of ideas and then their integration and elaboration into a system 
systematic theory. And it's that theory that I think caused people in his own time and afterwards to see him as a kind of Isaac Newton of political economy. The Wealth of Nations is, I think, definitely the title that Adam Smith is best known for. But the theory of moral sentiment often appeals to a rather different audience. If you were to make the case that uh, Adam Smith is perhaps less of a pure free market liberal, you tend to like the theory of moral sentiment. They seem very different to me too. Can you account for that in the way that he was developing? Yes, I think the key point is to understand they're all part of one single overarching theory, which he's progressively elaborating and developing. So the theory of moral sentiments is published in 1759, Wealth of Nations in 1776. There's 17 years between them. And the first book is about our moral psychology and how we form norms and values in society. And then the second book takes that as background and asks, when you come to markets, what do markets look like when they're embedded in norms and practice and tradition and history and all the ways it described. So it's quite a modern development to pretend that markets are just, as it were, uh, economic models to be found in spreadsheets. You say at one point that Smith has become a figure of reverence for libertarians and a figure of hatred for the left, both of which you describe as completely absurd. Absurd because they're spotting the wrong things or exaggerating? They're very, very partial. Very, very few people who write about Smith have actually read much of him. And you see that in the analyses. So the first one is the suggestion that the two books are somehow contradictory to each other. So the idea would be, well, one is about altruism and the other is about self-interest. And one is about uh, moral goodness and the other is about greed. And actually, that's quite wrong. There's a single overarching theory here. And what links the two and what links all Smith's thought is the idea of exchange. So market exchange in markets, but also exchange of regard or value or esteem in the way we form our norms and social conventions. Most crucially also, people tend to forget this in the unpublished lectures on rhetoric, exchange of ideas through language. And all of those that make him incredibly current, not just to the rapidly expanding Scotland of the 18th century, but also to many contemporary issues today. Oh, as indeed in September the 2nd, 1843, our very first issue, the great uprising of the economist against the the Corn Laws protectionist measures, to which a reader wrote in, I thought you'd be amused to revisit this, I am convinced that if any person will but make himself acquainted with the doctrines of Adam Smith, the scales must fall from his eyes. He will at once perceive the absurdity and folly of protection to any class as being in reality Nothing. We quoted Adam Smith, I think, almost every week or nearly every week, 1843 and early 1844. Tell us a bit about the relationship with The Economist. Well, it's such a good question. So Smith's um, reputation is such that by the time you get to the 1830s and 40s, where these issues of free trade are starting to become very pressing, that he becomes a co-celebre in a way that he never was in his own lifetime. And then at the time of the centenary of Smith's Wealth of Nations in 1876, um, Badgett himself says that the idea of free trade seems absolutely commonplace to us now, but was regarded as a wild superstition, as it were, until relatively recently. And of course, that just marks the change in temperament and sentiment. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the arguments that The Economist and, and indeed Badgett himself were making. That is, of course, Badgett, the great editor of The Economist and constitutional historian, who gave his name to our weekly column on British politics. Now, 175 years after that early reader put pen to paper, we're having the same arguments about protectionism, fair competition, and how to make the economy work for everyone. Here's Heather McGregor again. 
What I find interesting about Adam Smith's reputation today in the 21st century is that the further away you go from Scotland, the more he is revered. I find people in China, when they hear that, you know, I'm the head of a business school that owns Adam Smith's house, suddenly elevate me to a whole new category that I definitely don't deserve. But it's interesting that the extent to which his work is understood and read and debated and thought, there are entire courses at American universities that do nothing but work their way through the Wealth of Nations chapter by chapter. And we have previously seen tours of these people when Pamela House was a ruin, just turn up outside so that they could see it. And you will see when we go to the grave that the path to his grave is very well trodden. I don't doubt that his influence and you know, his fame is so much greater now than it was in the 1700s when he was alive. So we've just left Pamnew House and walked for a short walk up the hill to Canongate Kirk. Um, and it's in this churchyard that Adam Smith was buried when he died in 1790. Um, as we approach it, you'll see that it's surrounded by railings. And there is his tombstone at the back in the wall. It says, here are deposited the remains of Adam Smith, author of The Theory of Moral Sentiments, and wealth of nations. He was born on the 5th of June, 1723, and he died 17th of July, 1790. I think we need him more today than we did actually in the 1700s. He was a passionate advocate of, uh, of the ability to trade freely and without barriers. He had some very impressive things to say about taxation, actually, why it was necessary to be definite about it and have it properly planned and collected. I think he would be horrified to see the length of the UK tax code if he was alive today. And he really had some interesting things to say about how nations should progress. I mean, his view was that if there was too big a gap between the very richest and the very poorest, that it would be difficult for a nation to progress. So all of these things are tremendously relevant today, 300 years later. Well, let's turn to today and why we might need Adam Smith today. Jesse Norman, your book comes 10 years after the financial crisis. Many more questions were raised at a profound level about how governments and central banks deal with modern economies. What would they take from Adam Smith? What could they learn from him? I think there are many things that policymakers today could take from Adam Smith. The, the first is to think of markets in that much more nuanced way and to ask of a market not, um, as it were, is it failing in these traditional economic ways, but does it do what it's supposed to be doing? Is it discharging a public function? How exactly is it working? A second thing is that financial specialists in particular can look at what he says about the collapse of the air bank in 1772, which arose because of enormous uh, indebtedness arising from the kiting of bills of exchange. And what Smith says there is uh, we need party walls to prevent a fire from becoming a general conflagration. And that pushes us towards more prudence in our regulatory system. But it also directs us to think about specific channels by which feedback loops can become very, very aggressively pro-cyclical and lead to crashes of a kind that we saw in 2008. And finally, he lays out a way of thinking about crony capitalism that's very, very strong and pungent, whether we're thinking about excessive CEO pay today or the way in which the technology platforms can be potentially ripping off outsiders to the benefit of insiders. And what about the resurgence of 
protectionism in America. I mean, uh, Donald Trump most often to be heard banging the drum for some form of protectionism. Is that a sign that the world that Adam Smith foresaw, at least in the Anglosphere, is in retreat now? Well, it's certainly a sign that much of what we took to be the conventional wisdom about free trade is being questioned and overturned by politicians. And Smith, of course, recognizes that there will be moments where people may wish to threaten a trade war in order to keep each other honest and committed to, as it were, open markets and open trade. But he's perfectly clear that free trade increases equality and decreases economic value. And therefore, a protracted war in trade would be very, very damaging uh, then, in his view, as now, I believe, today. We must ask you what you think Adam Smith would have made of Brexit. He was a great defender of the union between Scotland and England, 1707, and effectively a free trade area that it created. Am I right to assume he'd have been marching for Remain? Well, I, I don't think we can take it. Of course, the question of what um, Smith would think about, uh, you know, Brexit or the hijab or Beyonce's latest uh, um, album, of course, is a parlor game. So we can't really make a judgment. But it's certainly true that all of the major intellectuals of the 18th century Scottish Enlightenment were in favor of union. And that's a point that Scottish nationalists today need to bear in mind. But he's very clear of the economic advantages. And he says that the Union of 1707 is a measure from which infinite good has been derived to this country, which he means Scotland. In relation to Brexit, it's really interesting. Smith was asked in 1778 for his advice about the American colonies, which were then uh, in revolution. And his solution was that the colonists should have representation in the British Parliament. But he said, of course, that means that sovereignty must inevitably be transferred from here to the colonies over time. So he captures both the free trade worries of those who wish to preserve the single market and the sovereignty worries of the Brexiteers themselves. When the referendum happened on leaving the EU, I think you were the only Member of Parliament not to express an opinion on it, and I don't think you still have. Why is that? Well, it's not quite true that I'm the only member because I had another one come up to me the other day and very annoyed that I'd been described as such. But I took the view that there were many questions contained in the referendum question. And my job as a constituency MP on a private vote was to help my constituents make their decisions. So I didn't, as it were, sit on the fence. I actively worked very hard to educate my constituents with meetings, with emails, by curating a website. But how can you educate them if we don't really, if you're not open about what your view is? Because the facts themselves, and let alone the interpretation, are contested at the two ends of the argument. Well, I took the view that if you could pull together the best analysis on both sides of the argument, then people could make a decision. Will you come out one way or another before Article 50 if it occurs next year? Well, well, I've already voted for Brexit in Parliament and I've supported the government in the decisions that it's taken and I'll certainly continue to do that. Whatever they may be. I've got a, a final question for you. In which popular American drama would we find a baddie who keeps a copy of The Wealth of Nations on his bookshelf? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know... The answer to that question, uh, but... It's set in Baltimore. Oh, okay. Is The Wire, is that set in Baltimore? Okay. You are right. After one prompt, it is Stringer Bell who runs the entire drug empire of this sort of underworld on the corner. When it all comes down, we see that one thing that is left behind is the wealth of nations. What would Adam Smith have made of that? That's well, I it. hope what he'd make is that he's only read half the work. You ought to read the, the theory of moral sentiments and understand why Smith isn't just the greatest political economist of all time, but the greatest moral psychologist and social psychologist as well. Jesse Norman, thank you very much. Thank you, Anne. Goodbye. So what do you think? 
Can a bygone Scottish philosopher help us answer some of the critical questions we face in the world economy today? Should the losers of free trade be compensated? How do you tax a global tech giant? Or can the excesses of crony capitalism really be reined in? We want you to join the debate. Do go to economist.com slash open markets. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.